0: Lord, you are our shepherd. In you, we have everything we need. You lead us in green pastures. You lead us to still waters. You restore our souls. We pray, would you do that this morning? Would you restore our souls? Lord, you guide us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And uh, when we go through dark valleys, we need not be afraid for you are with us your rod and your staff they comfort us you even prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies and our you anoint our heads with oil and our cup it overflows in you surely goodness and mercy and loving kindness will follow us all the days of our lives and we will dwell in your house, O oh Lord, forever. Amen. It's uh, it's truly an honor this morning to have a, a guest with us, Rick Watts. Doctor uh, is uh, is no stranger to us. We've been he's been to Hillside before, and we're really grateful to have him back. Um, I love it when Rick talks about Jesus, and his talk is all about Jesus today. And uh, Rick's uh, no stranger to this region, he has uh, originally from Australia, but has ministered at Regent College for many, many years and was uh, their New Testament professor for 20 years, uh, 96 to 2016. Uh, and uh, I have listened to many of his courses online, not as many in person, but many, many uh, on audio and love. <laughs> um, and uh, he's married to Katie, he's got two adult children, and uh, he's uh, retired, semi, semi-retired now, lives out in Langley, and we're just really grateful that he's come this morning. I want to just tell you a quick thing. Men, our men's retreat is coming up. Uh, we're partnering with CA Church, and guess who their speaker is? <laughs> Dr. Rick Watts. And uh, so Simon, who you saw, Simon, give a big wave. Uh, is going along with some others, and if you'd like to register, really, you need to do it today. I'd, I'd encourage you to register today. It's out at Camp Kakwa. They have a great setup there. It's going to be a lot of fun, great connections with other guys, and some good content, too, and and so just really is going to be an inspiring weekend. Um, you can grab a, a card with all the details, all the registration details are the back, or you can go on to CA Church's website, and you can register through their website as well, um, but Great, great theme, and uh, would encourage you to do that. Um, one last thing I, we almost forgot to announce. You'll see gradually, this is our last Sunday for our Easter art exhibit. And uh, so after the service today, if you want to see and, and if you haven't had a chance to ponder some of the items, some of them have already disappeared. But today's the last day. They're coming down this week. So take a look after the service if you'd like to, to see some of our exhibit uh, of individuals in our congregation who've produced those pieces of art. Rick? Rick? Come on up here. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Can we give him a warm hillside thank you.
1: welcome? Well, thank you, thank you. Thank you. well, it's great to see you all this morning. Uh, let me say the content for that uh, weekend is different from this morning. So uh, if I fail hopelessly this morning, maybe I'll do better on the weekend. Well, you know, this being the first week after Easter, I've been asked to address the question who was Jesus really? And I need to, need to apologise at the outset, 35 to 40 minutes seems like a ridiculously small slice of time <laughs> to speak about someone without whom the modern world would simply not exist. And yes, even the Chinese Academy of Social Science in Beijing know this. I was there and I heard them say it. And they are hardly right-wing religious fundamentalists. Okay? Now, that's not to blame anyone here. If anyone, it's Jesus' own fault. He's the one who begun this ruckus, and there's just so much to be said about him. So in thinking about it, we could have spent our time on a small vignette or two, but I've decided to go for the big picture, and let me warn you, it will be overwhelming. You will not get everything. But that's the point. Jesus is nothing if not overwhelming, and none of us fully gets him. So all of that to say, don't worry if you don't get everything. If this sounds like a fire hydrant, right, something or feels like a fire hydrant, um, as a colleague of mine used to say, there are cookies on every shelf and it's being recorded, so if you want to, you can always come back and listen again. In other words, don't get too fussed, don't get frustrated, strap in and let's go. Next slide. Well. Even back in the first century I'm sorry if that tech, can you read that up there? Yes, you can, okay uh, No rabbi got even one biography. Some emperors got two very brief ones, but only Jesus gets four biographies, and they're far longer than anything else around in the first century. That's staggering. We're dealing with the stuff that we actually have, namely these biographies, what we call gospels. Now, we might need some help reading these things because they're first century biographies, not like modern ones, and they're fundamentally Jewish in outlook even though they're written to the Greco-Roman world. Now, we don't know a lot about that kind of stuff. We're not very familiar with it, so we might need some help. Okay, I'm going to try and do that with you this morning. Mark's version, the shortest and probably the first, was once given to a world-renowned German classicist Gunther Zuntz for his comment. Now, apparently, Gunther knew almost nothing about Christianity, but he did know a lot about the Greco-Roman world into which Mark was written. And you can see in front of you, this is what he concluded. This is something very important, with a superior purpose, a feeling of otherness, a history, a biography unlike any other. It's about a higher being on his way through the anxious world of human beings and demons. Now, isn't that an interesting description? That's how someone who knows the classical world summarises the Gospel of Mark. Now, if that sounds a little different from what we're thinking, that probably shows how out of step we are with what was going on in the first century. We need to try and catch up a bit if we can. Now, two points stand out about this, if I can say. First of all, this is a history and it's a biography. So that immediately rules out any suggestions that the Gospels are myths, legends or fairy tales. You heard that stuff? Right? That's a category error, they're not that. Now, that doesn't mean you have to believe the Gospels, but it does mean you've got to assess them in the light of first century histories and biographies as eyewitness accounts. We're going to be doing that as we go through. The second thing to notice, this was unlike anything else Gunter had ever read. Mark clearly thought his subject was of unparalleled importance and not least because of how other Jesus was. Now, that's a bit of an issue for some of us because when I was growing up, Jesus was more like Casper, the friendly Jesus. And that's not what you get in the Gospels. In fact, you can't read the Gospels without being struck by how different and other Jesus is. Now, this is worth pursuing because its implications are enormous. It's not as if there was a whole bunch of people running around doing odd things with Jesus just one among the many. On the contrary, in his Jewish world, it's all pretty much minor variations around the same basic and somewhat ordinary themes. And then, as Gunther noticed, and completely out of left field, there's this otherworldly Jesus who walks untroubled amongst the world of anxious men and demons. That's a really big deal everywhere else in antiquity. You understand nearly everything Jesus does is without previous parallel. Just think about that. Where does this come from? And that's where the pressing historical question arises, and we don't have to believe in God or spirits or an afterlife or anything like that to answer this question. Who could possibly invent this material when so much of it, whether in isolated bits or in the powerfully coherent Gospels that we've actually got, is not what anyone expected, let alone even imagined? You got that? Who could invent this kind of stuff when it's not even part of your peripheral vision? And all of this is written down within living memory of a host of eyewitnesses. Now, I just need to say in parentheses here, this is why no one in my professional field would bother wasting time responding to assertions that the Gospels are mere inventions and Jesus never existed. Forgive me, but they presuppose such an obstinate ignorance of so much evidence you'd be better off trying to reason with an angry fence post. <laughs> right? Just Don't even bother to go down that road because for such people, obviously, evidence doesn't mean anything. Next slide. Now, over the last 250 years, and yes, I mean 250 years, brilliant academics have put the Gospels through an unimaginably rigorous philosophical and more recent historical ringer. Right? They've really examined these things. And over this period, they've learned so much more about the acute, in, uh, acute inadequacies of a philosophical approach. I'm not interested in philosophy. Philosophy is what humans speculate. I'm interested in what actually happened. And that's why in my field, people are much more concerned now about history. Dealing with the Gospels as history. Now, that's going to create some issues because philosophy and theology are bedfellows. And none of that goes on in the New Testament. Because we're not dealing with rational systems. We're dealing with this unique person. And that's why people pay so much attention now to Jesus' first century cultural and social world. We're going to do that. Furthermore, historians will tell us that history is not actually about events, in spite of what you might have learnt. History is about human action. Human action and the staggering thing about the Gospels is their immensely coherent account of Jesus' extraordinary sense of personal agency. Who the heck is this guy? That's the question that comes through over and over again. Who does this person think he is to say and to do such things? Now, I've wrestled with how to express this profound dissonance with people's experience. And uh, the problem is, you see, some of us are so used to the Gospels, they roll off our backs like water off a duck. Let me assure you, that's definitely not how they struck the earliest eyewitnesses. Time and again, people are absolutely stunned, staggered, amazed, gobsmacked, or profoundly offended. Right? You don't get crucified for being Mr Rogers, you understand. The gospel writers ran out of words. And this is one of those moments, I don't mean to offend anyone, but it'd be nice not to be a Christian because non-Christians have some wonderful ways of expressing this that we simply can't use, right? (laughs) They can say, what the, and we can't, okay? (laughs) But they catch the edge of it because that's what this was like, okay? So can I say to you folks, if Jesus is some comfortable slipper that you put on to make you feel safe at night, you don't know the Jesus of the Bibles, of the Scriptures, Gospels, I should say, right? He's profoundly shocking, and he will knock our world sideways in spite of how much we try to compartmentalize him and make him comfortable. And that just might be one of the reasons why he doesn't impact the world in our lives as much as we would like. We've domesticated him, but he will not be that. So who is this? Now, one of the things that is immediately different if you start looking at ancient biographies, and hence the Gospels, is that they have nothing on the inner thought life of the protagonist. Most modern novels talk about what's going on in people's heads. None of that in the Gospels. No one thought like that in antiquity. What matters to them is what is said and done. That's a really important thing to keep in mind. We can think all we like, but what people see and hear is what we say and do. That's what speaks volumes. And what they mean, of course, when they talk about actions and words is what Jesus said or these people said as mature adults. Sorry, folks, but the ancients were not that persuaded that wet behind the ears teenagers and inexperienced 20-somethings had much to say that was worth hearing. Sorry about that, (laughs) but that's their world. And I have to say, the more I look back on my early years, the more I find myself in embarrassed agreement. Oh, dear. The upshot is that when we talk about this otherness of Jesus, we can do so under two basic categories, the mighty words and the mighty deeds of Jesus' adult life, both of which made an enormous impression on friend and foe alike. Now, do notice that no one denied Jesus' amazing authority. No one could deny that. So the only question then became, where does that power come from? And hence, who is this? Right, next slide. It's obvious from Jesus' striking aphorisms, that means bring it one-liners, his utterly memorable stories, prodigal son, and relatively straightforward language addressed to the crowds that Jesus was a teacher. And not only that, he was deadly serious about folks remembering what he taught. Now, if you've grown up with the Beatles, like me, hence the grey hair, or their modern descendants hence the not grey hair, Uh, you might be forgiven for thinking that all Jesus spoke about was love. Actually, not so much. His main focus was a very common Jewish concern, the Kingdom of God, by which he meant Israel's unique God, who was utterly unlike the gods of the nations, exercising his kingship on earth. That's what Jesus was concerned with. Got that? Not going to heaven. Not wearing nighties, playing electric harps, because we're more modern now, right? (laughs) That wasn't his concern. It's the reign of God upon the earth. It's what Israel's prophets foretold and what many Jews in Jesus' day were looking for. Now, again, you don't have to believe in any of this. You understand, that's not the issue. The historian's job is not to criticize or haughtily dismiss, but first to understand. That's what we're gonna do, we're gonna try and understand. Now, the problem here is that Jesus' version of the kingdom of God was not at all what anyone was expecting. Now, you're a Jew, and you really care about your history. That's what your scriptures are. And the center of that history is the Exodus, where they get the law, the Torah, given to Moses by God himself. Every other Jewish teacher in the first century envisaged the kingdom of God as calling people to a more rigorous obedience to the law. There are some Christians who'd be much more comfortable being a first century Jewish rabbi than following Jesus, I think, because they love the law. And there's a certain power that goes with looking down one's nose at those who don't keep it. Anyone know that wonderful feeling? I do, but not you because you're all righteous. The Essenes were the most extreme, summoning Jews to leave everything and come into the desert to live a pure life, reenacting Israel's ancient wilderness sojourn. The Pharisees stayed at home, but they instituted a vast web of extra regulations to build a fence around the law, something we Christians never do, thank you Lord, to protect Israel from breaking it. And the hope was that if Israel kept the law perfectly for two Sabbaths running, Messiah would come, who's the Messiah, their long-awaited Davidic king, and with him, God's kingdom, and at last, freedom from the hated, idolatrous people south of the water. I mean the Romans. Okay? <laughs> it's okay, I also have a US passport. So. Yeah. Maybe the people in Whistler will be thinking Australians, with some justification. Now, given first century Jews' view of the world, that all makes sense, right? Next slide. Thank you. Jesus, staggeringly, was nothing like this. First, he didn't seem to be much fussed by the Romans, and that would surely raise an eyebrow or two. And what Messiah would command his followers to love their Roman enemies, to do good to those who persecute you, let alone commend one of the centurions for his unmatched faith? What kind of Messiah says no to weapons and summons his followers instead to take up their cross? Now, think as a historian here. Who does that? Nobody! Where does this come from? What's the origins of all of this? Well, you know, given our limited time, and I forgot to look at the clock when I started... I think I've got an idea of where we're meant to be. Uh, some highlights will have to suffice. Now, we talked about Torah. Key to observing Torah was keeping Sabbath. I grew up with that. No sports on a Sunday. Anybody else know that? Yeah, okay, good. Good Christian Sabbath keepers. Right? Uh, of course, this Jewish feast was known the world over, and it was a time in which no work was done by Jews. Now, in one account, Jesus is in a synagogue... Uh, that's their Sabbath meeting house. Probably not so much different from what we're doing today. It's on a Sabbath. And he provocati- provocatively calls up in front of everybody a man with a withered arm. Some of you might know that story. His opponents are already bristling. Is he going to make a scene? For them, you can't work on the Sabbath, meaning you can save life, but you cannot heal. And then what happens? Well, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, not. In their face heals him and then quotes the climax of their law back at them. Moses defined the law as saving life and doing good. So who gave you the right to separate them? There's a public zinger for you. Now, the thing is, this kind of argument is completely without precedent in Jewish tradition. And we talk about the otherness of Jesus. No one ever argued that before. Later on, on another Sabbath, he's going through a wheat field with his mates, and or disciples, as you know them, and they're nibbling some grain. From lurking behind the wheat sheaves, up spring the Sabbath police. You can't do that, they say. Jesus' response is again strikingly unprecedented. He says to them, if David, your hero, who would think of talking about Sabbath in terms of David? If David, your hero, and whose messianic son you await, can eat holy food that was forbidden to all but priests simply because he had need, and if the high priest through whom the word of God came gave him that food, who are you to criticize my disciples for eating ears of wheat. Go and learn, he says. Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. That's an important lesson for us to remember too, I should think. Now, the point is, folks, no one has made this kind of argument before. This is a truly innovative reading of David and directly challenging their rigorous view of Torah and especially Sabbath. Remember, Sabbath is Israel's unique identity marker. Who does that? And in this kind of way? Well, of course, it's hard to explain the divisiveness and hostility Jesus engendered unless he was seriously provocative. You just don't say these kinds of things, especially to the folks who see themselves as the moral police of the universe. Ring any bells? it gets far worse. Next slide, please. Especially when we come to the famous Sermon on the Mount, and I'm sure we all remember the Beatitudes, they're wonderful things, blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. Right? What's often missed is the mind-boggling nature of what follows. Several times Jesus says, you have heard it said, and he quotes Torah. Now You know what Torah is, right? For them... It's Yahweh's very own ancient law given through Moses to Israel, binding the nation to their unique God. It's hard to imagine anything more sacred. And then he says, but I say unto you. This is Israel, and more than any other ancient people, they care about and know about their history. So here is this Jesus on a mountain, He's talking about Torah to the crowds. Does that remind you of anything? Can you imagine Moses coming down the mountain? Well, I spent 40 days with God and he told me this and that, but I say unto you, like, really? Just put yourself back in that historical moment. No first century Jew could even imagine such a statement, let alone invented. It's incomprehensible, head-shaking stuff. You just don't even have categories for this. And that's not all. Just before this, he began by saying, do not think I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. Imagine if Duran stood up here, right, and began his sermon by saying, do not suppose I've come to destroy the law, the prophets, and Jesus. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? No rabbi would even dream of saying such a thing. It would never even occur to them. It's utterly bizarre. I mean, who would say that and why? Unless, of course... That's exactly what you're about to do might look like, as we've just seen with the Sabbath. But then, immediately after, he speaks of the abiding validity of Torah. Hang on a minute. How do I put that together? How does that work? And then he goes on to say what we've just reported. You've heard Torah say, but I say unto you. Now, few sayings of Jesus are as difficult as this one, and they're preached to a congregation. So you can't use Jesus as a model for milksop sermons, right? If you're not finding your brain being twisted when you come to church on Sunday, well, hang on, you need to get in step with the stuff that Jesus does, Because right? he really does put some curly ones out there. Now, when people come to this, most of them start, as would any first-century Jew, by assuming the Torah that God gave to Moses is the measure of all things, And they then try to resolve these apparent contradictions by showing how Jesus' teaching merely expands on or clarifies Torah. And it's pretty amazing to watch them work. It requires some slick, nifty manoeuvres with quick hands and fancy feet. But even so, it actually doesn't really work, as we'll see in just a few moments. So how do we resolve this apparently glaring contradiction? Well, there's a couple of things to bear in mind. First, Jesus is regularly known for putting two apparently contradictory things together. You can think of some. Honour your parents, because God commanded it. If you don't hate your parents, you cannot follow me. The only way to make sense of these two is to put Jesus at the centre. Yes, you must honour your parents, But I must take utter priority even over them. Now, just think about what kind of personal status that implies. Who does Jesus think he is? This suggests to me that the problem is that we start with Torah. And that's understandable. Every good rabbi called people not to follow themselves but to follow Torah. No no rabbi in the first century ever summoned disciples. It would be inconceivable. It's not about them, it's about Torah. But not Jesus. He staggeringly, even offensively, calls people to follow not Torah, but him. And I think that's what's going on here. He's putting himself at the centre. Even when it comes to Torah and the prophets. Yes, he says, I'm warning you from the very beginning... The what I'm about to do and say will look like I'm destroying the law. But I am the one who is telling you that I am instead fulfilling it, no matter how it might look to you. That's a bit eye-watering, don't you think? Where in the world does that come from? Who does this guy think he is? Next slide. Now, you can see how this works out. Later, we hear is some Jewish authorities, Pharisees and their legal experts, rebuking Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands before eating. But look at Jesus' response. The first thing is he holds them accountable to the Torah. Right? He holds them accountable. Torah, he says, never acquired this, which means that you, in inventing new laws and passing over others, demonstrate that your hearts are far from God. Whoa. That's a searing and very public condemnation. He says, if you truly honoured God, you'd take his word very seriously indeed. And folks, that's why as Christians, we don't dare to add new laws. We might think it's being very spiritual to add all these extra things, but from Jesus' point of view, the only reason we do it is because our hearts are far from God. It's one of the reasons I'm a Protestant. Scripture, sola. That's another journey. Take another time. And then what does Jesus do? Exactly what he accused them of doing. He then turns to the crowds and says, it's not what goes in that defiles, but what comes out in flat contradiction of Torah, where God had said to Moses, these things shall be unclean for you. Now, not surprisingly, this is debated, but on my view, Jesus is saying, yes, you are all accountable to Torah, and I will hold you accountable to it. But, as the one who is fulfilling all of this, neither me nor those who follow me are going to be accountable to it. My teaching now takes priority. Just try to imagine that in the first century. Want to talk about making friends? And, uh, <laughs> later on a righteous Israelite wants to follow Jesus good move but he asked first to bury his parents and rightly so there's a massive amount of Jewish tradition on honouring parents and a proper burial was so important it took priority even over saying the Shema you know it Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Shema okay? Yisrael. you know that saying It's Israel's singularly self-defining devotion to Yahweh alone. Burying your parents took priority even over that. And what does Jesus say? Let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. What the? Have you thought about that? Following him takes precedence? Even over Israel's self defining Shema and bearing your parents? Who in the world did Jesus think he was really? And that's the question we're addressing this morning. Who did Jesus really think he was? Now, the only one who might possibly change Torah, and that's assuming you'd even want to, is the one who gave it. And that's not Moses, but God Himself. So, what's going on with Jesus? How is it even conceivable to a first century Jewish mind? And it's not as if this is something he gradually builds up to to get them used to. Very early on in Mark, we hear Jesus saying to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And his learned critics, that's people like me, immediately cry foul. The scriptures are very clear. Only God can do this. I am the Lord who forgives your sins. And what's Jesus rejoinder? Well, he doesn't sit down and open his computer Bible program. (laughs) He doesn't have an academic debate. He says, "Okay, so which is harder, to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? And by that he means with some kind of visible outcome. The answer is pretty straightforward. Both are impossible for human beings. You try it. Again, this is so out of left field. Gunther and Mark were right. We have never seen anything like this before. And this is not just human stuff. What in the world is going on here? And there's a lot more Jesus talks about, which we don't really have time to go into. What first century Jew talks about his individual death as though it will change the world forever? I mean, seriously? So much so that he orchestrates, and yes, he does. He orchestrates his execution in Jerusalem on Passover. Just read the Gospels. He plans this and ensures that it happens. Just think about that. He also declared that he would rise from the dead, which for Jews made at least some kind of sense, since many of them believed that God would raise the righteous on the last day. Of course, that assumes that Jesus was righteous, which, as you'd realize by now, not a few would strenuously deny. And then he gets to Israel's sacred Passover meal, going right back to the heart of Israel's identity. And what does Jesus do with this? Well, now it's all about me, and I'm changing the menu. Now, can you hear what this is really pointing to? No Messiah, no Son of God, nor any Son of Man was ever expected to say things like this. Just dig into Jewish tradition, and you'll see this. Part of our problem is we've imported into those titles all manner of things that were never there in the first century. The Messiah was just a human son of David on whose behalf God would defeat Rome and purge the wicked from Israel. That's it. Many Jewish figures could be called son of God. Just read the literature. After all, that's what God called Israel in Exodus 4.22 and then David in Psalm 2 and verse 7. It has nothing to do with being God in any sense at all. Likewise, the son of man, right? Enigmatic to be sure, But it never carried the kind of authoritative implications of Jesus' word. You get this? When Jesus speaks like this, he's not speaking like a Messiah or a son of God, nor even a son of man. Far more shockingly, he talks as if he himself is somehow the very presence of Israel's Yahweh among us. And that's what the New Testament means by calling Jesus Lord. That word occurs some 237 times in Paul and son of God, maybe 17. You know where the weight of the impact lies. Now, you'll notice to this point that I've spoken primarily of Jesus' words. And truth to tell, most folks are pretty comfortable with Jesus being a nice moral teacher. Though whether that comfortable image can survive what we've just talked about is highly unlikely. In fact, actually impossible. This stuff is so radically offensive and so off the wall, you can see why people might try to dismiss Jesus as simply insane. And that might have worked if saying odd things is all that Jesus did. But what makes him utterly unavoidable is not just that his words don't sound like those of a nutter, and they don't, but along with his teaching, he performs the most extraordinary and gobsmacking mighty deeds. There's simply no way to sweep him under the carpet and that brings us to our second section. Now, this won't take quite so long. Are you hanging in there? Yeah. You're reeling a bit? I hope you are reeling because that's the whole point, kind of a godly slap, 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 right? <laughs> <coughs> so in then you'll go, oh, my goodness, I never realised this is the one to whom I've given my life. That's my agenda this morning. Now, you know, there's a whole question around Jesus' miracles. And, of course, we're all children of our time, and it wasn't so long ago that it was actually considered impolite, even for ministers, to talk about such things. Well, next slide. But saner historical heads have since prevailed. If evidence is to mean anything, it is undeniable that Jesus had an unmatched reputation at every level of the traditions about him of performing extraordinary miracles. You just can't deny that. Whether we believe it or not, that's where the evidence points overwhelmingly. Only they weren't miracles. That's our word, not his, nor those of his earliest followers. They called them mighty deeds or signs. Now, why does that matter? I don't want to spend too much time on this, but miracles often implies there's been a breach of the laws of nature. Nothing in the gospel suggests that happens. If a Jew looked up in the first century and saw a Boeing dreamliner flying over Jerusalem, they might think it's miraculous. We know better. It's entirely in keeping with the laws of nature. We just understand them better and we're able to manipulate them. And I would would see Jesus' mighty deeds in exactly the same way. There is no hint that any laws are being broken. And it seems to me not inconceivable that somebody who can speak about himself in the terms we've just seen Not inconceivable that he could also work with his creation in exactly the same kind of authoritative way. Now we could talk more about that, but we don't really have time. Um, These days, it's pretty much common amongst biblical scholars to accept that Jesus was very widely believed, unlike any other comparable figure of his day, to have healed and delivered multitudes. And by that, they're agreeing that something observable must have happened to persuade these people of Jesus' remarkable authority. Now, people are still not quite sure about the feedings and commanding the sea, but the other accounts are no longer seen as outrageously problematic, even if we can't fully explain them. And I've seen that change in my own lifetime. When I first began this in my 30s, one view, now 70, things have changed. Now, again... As surprising as it might sound, these mighty deeds are not the kinds of things messiahs, sons of gods, or even the enigmatic son of man were expected to do. How many mighty deeds does David do? Actually zip. We talk about messianic healings. They're nothing to do with the messiah. There's nothing in Jewish tradition that tells us the messiah will heal people. And that's why when people are trying to work out who Jesus is, the place they go is prophet, not Messiah. At least prophets have some kind of connection with odd things. (laughs) And the interesting thing about all of this is this otherworldliness of which Gunther spoke. Just like Jesus' mighty words regarding Torah, his authoritative mighty deeds also suggest that he saw himself as somehow embodying Yahweh's very presence in all his mighty power among us. This is all about Jesus' very particular sense of personal agency. There's a lot can be said about Jesus' mighty deeds and signs and we don't really have time to do that either. Just a few quick observations. One thing that stands out when you look at these against the backdrop of first century Jewish and Greco-Roman worlds is how peculiarly selective are the Gospels' accounts of Jesus' mighty deeds. Yep, they regularly speak of Jesus healing all or many who came to him. But the particular accounts are much more focused. The specific stories of Jesus' mighty deeds deal with eyes, ears, mouths, limbs, cleansing bodies, enabling people to move and bringing them back to life. No healings of baldness, sorry, (laughs) or five-year pregnancies, yes, that was known in some areas too, or giving gold fillings, nothing like that. You understand, here again is the strangest. There's nothing like this particular concentration anywhere in antiquity, which makes me think this goes back to Jesus himself. Very quickly, I think the best explanation is Jesus saw himself as restoring the image of God in humanity. Image language was well understood in antiquity. It referred to the idols of the gods protected in the dark hearts of their great pagan temples, which Israel scriptures regularly mocked. Why? For having eyes but not seeing, ears but not hearing, mouths but not speaking, etc., etc. And so they concluded were all those who worshipped them. I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's restoring humanity in God's image. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, that's Isaiah 35. That's a nice try, except no one in the first century ever read Isaiah 35 as describing physical healing. Jesus is the first one to do that, and it stuns John the Baptist because he's not expecting that either. Hmm. I think it's the same idea behind Jesus casting out unclean spirits. Humans, as God's image, were, according to Jewish scriptures, designed to be indwelt by God's spirit something Jesus himself promised. If so, his casting out of unclean spirits is in preparation for God's indwelling Holy Spirit and that too belongs to the image motif. So all of that stuff together is something that only God himself can do and yet that's what Jesus actually does in front of people. (coughs) Oh, I'm very sorry about that. (coughs) Some said it thundered. No, it's just me having to deal with my sinuses. Now, of all the spectacular mighty deeds Jesus performed, only one, feeding people in the desert, had any kind of clear antecedent. And in fact, some folks expected this would be a sign repeated in the Messianic age which may explain why Jesus' feeding is the only sign where people want to make him king. It's the one clear point of contact but no one had any expectation of someone controlling the sea that prerogative belonged only to Yahweh himself and now you understand why the disciples are more terrified of Jesus than they were of the storm who the heck is this who tells the sea what to do well baby that ain't no Messiah that's no son of God, there's only one who does this this is all mind blowing Not only do the Gospels present the human Jesus as speaking but also acting in ways which according to Israel only Yahweh, their unique God, could. And there is absolutely nothing in Jewish tradition that would ever prepare them for this happening in a human being before their very eyes. Next slide. Well, there's a whole bunch of other deeds which I'll just list. I am watching the clock, believe it or not. They might not be quite so spectacular but they're equally confronting. We've already mentioned Jesus' actions on the Sabbath. But he eats with the wrong people. Tax collectors and sinners, something we've sanitized beyond all recognition. The substitute for tax collectors, the folks who would be your worst political opponents, whether Democrat or Republican, Liberal or Conservative, or who defy our current moral certitudes, whether homophobes or woke activists, and you get the sense of what it means for Jesus to eat with these people. We're meant to be offended even if we pretend we're not, by carefully making sure they're only the right tax collectors and the right sinners with whom he eats, And he justifies this repulsive behaviour by claiming he's not come for the world but for the sick. I'm not entirely sure how either group would have appreciated that moniker. No rabbi calls disciples, but Jesus calls twelve and on a mountain. What does that sound like? reconstituting the nation around himself. Speaking of mountains, there's a very odd account of the transfiguration. Now, we've seen shining in a mountain before. That's Moses on Sinai. After he's been in the cloud all those many days, talking with Yahweh. But here, long before the cloud, Jesus himself shines. In his Jewish tradition, there are three moments when Yahweh wore white and outshone his creation. At the creation of the world, when he married Israel at Sinai, and when he brought them back from the exile. And here are Moses and Elijah talking to whom? And when the cloud finally does turn up, instead of reams of Torah, as in the books of Moses, you get five Aramaic words. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus' teaching now replaces Torah. All this, folks, is very, very odd. And the disciples have no idea what to do with it. Hence Peter's remark right, that he had no idea what he was saying. They're completely discombobulated, whatever the Aramaic is for that. Why would the gospel writers invent this kind of stuff? And what does it say about who Jesus really is? We've already mentioned his death. And at the Passover meal, he takes the blood of the covenant language from the Exodus, the heart of Israel's foundational identity, where Yahweh binds the nation to himself, and Jesus says, that's what my death is doing. Who does that kind of thing? Who'd even imagine it? At the climax of his grand jury, when his powerful enemies still don't have enough to take him to Pilate, Jesus himself gives the frustrated high priest everything he needs and more to ensure they can take him to the Romans and ask for his execution. Jesus gives them that. Who does that kind of thing? But of course, they don't kill him, actually. A great deal is often made of Jesus' suffering on the cross, but in ancient terms, it's actually surprisingly brief. Hardened Pilate is so surprised he actually checks. He knows specifically that crucifixions were designed to take days. But Jesus himself had declared, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I will take it up. And according to the Gospels, after a mere six hours, Jesus with a great shout cried, Get ready for it. It is finished! And he gave up his life. Who does that? Whom have we come to worship this morning? Of course, begs the question, what has Jesus finished? And on what basis? Well, we'll have to leave that for another time. I've got maybe five minutes and then I'm done. Thanks for your patience. Now, all of this would have become, next slide, merely an odd historical side note. Okay, an inexplicably odd historical side note if it wasn't followed by something else, namely Easter, which we have all just celebrated. But even here, things are weirder than they seem. Yes, Jews uniquely believed in the resurrection of a restored human body, but we have to understand what that really meant. It was never about an individual. It was always, at least for all the righteous and for some Jews, also the wicked. And it would never happen on its own. It was integral to a much larger picture of a marvelously restored creation, the renewal of the Davidic kingship in the Messiah, the defeat of the nations, especially the Romans and their submission to Yahweh, the purging of the wicked from a glorious restored Jerusalem and the final gathering of all the exiles. That's what resurrection meant for them, all of that. So it's not hard to understand why no one in the Gospels went to the tomb on the third day, just to check, in case perhaps. They don't need to. All you need to do is look out the window. Nothing has changed. Nothing at all. Nothing. The women go, but only to complete the burial rites that they necessarily had left incomplete with the coming of Sabbath. In fact, their worry, having got it all else sorted, was the small but overlooked matter of the stone. And the very first inkling they get that the entire cosmos has moved sideways is when they see it's already been moved. Now, think about this. What Jew would ever invent or even conceive of such a story, it certainly wouldn't persuade other Jews who were looking for exactly the kind of thing that Jesus' disciples were. Yet they insisted that they themselves had touched, seen and handled he was no ghost. He ate and it didn't fall through his sandals. And yet he could appear and disappear at will. This is not just a, res- a resuscitation, folks. This was having passed through death to come out on the other side. And that's what he now offers to all of us. The problem is not goodness. The problem's death. And what he's offering is if we'll trust him, his life in us will take us through death and his life will also take care of the goodness. Last slide, and thank you for your patience. I think we probably had enough. How does one explain these accounts? We've only covered some of them. It's so unlike what anyone expected. Beyond, I would urge, anyone's imagination. And all of this concentrated around this one figure. It's not hard to understand why the Chinese get that the modern world is the consequence of the story about Jesus. So, who was Jesus really? My personal guru? My financial coach? My go-to person when I can't quite handle it myself, as if? Perhaps Thomas, forever known for his doubts, is long overdue a rehabilitation. He's the first person in the New Testament who ever addresses Jesus as he really was. My Yahweh and my Elohim. That's who Jesus really was. Thanks for listening.